This morning's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 27, verses 8 through 44. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter and the majority decided we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the fourteenth night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was forty meters deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was thirty meters deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. 
When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck, the bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swim, swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. This is the word of the Lord. Brilliant. Welcome, everyone. Let me add my welcome to Scott. My name's Nick. I'm one of the uh, ministers here. Welcome. Um, it's quite a long passage, and we're going to be looking at it um, fairly closely. So if you can um, keep that passage open in front of you, it'll be really, really useful. We'll make sure you can see it in some way or other. Let me pray <clears throat> as we begin. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as your children this morning, and you tell us that your word in the Bible is living and active. And so we ask you to make it live to us this morning. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. Let me start by uh, asking you a question. How do you personally tend to react in a crisis? When a crisis hits, how do you tend to uh, respond? I recently heard uh, of a moment uh, in a family, silly example, where everyone's hanging out in the kitchen. Uh, the youngest daughter, six years old, walks into the kitchen with a uh, fluorescent liquid pouring from her mouth and down her shoulder. Um, she'd been gnawing on a glow stick. Uh, I'm not quite sure what it is about that color that makes kids want to chew, <laughs> um, but it happens again and again. Anyway, she chewed into this glow stick and it's built significant amount in her mouth and all down her shoulder. And there were two reactions in the room. On one side of the room, her mum reacted by panicking. Lots of noise, lots of flapping around, not much help. But on the other side of the room, her older sister, who was a teenager, very calmly sat her down, uh, got her a glass of milk, and Googled what to do, and it was all fine. <laughs> But if those two reactions were kind of different ends of a scale, how you can respond to a crisis, I mean, where, where, where would you be on that scale? How do you tend to respond to a crisis? Of course, that's a, a silly example, but serious crisis moments can and will come to each one of us in all sorts of ways. And you get family crises, don't you? Like uh, bereavements or unforeseen financial difficulties. You get emotional crisis, like the sudden onset of mental health problems. You get social crises, like global pandemics, <laughs> like we're all facing at the moment. They vary. The crises that crash over us vary. But they do come. And when they come, how do you respond? Or let me ask a, uh, maybe I think a better question. When a crisis comes, what is the source of your composure? When the crisis comes, what is the source of your composure? I want to suggest whether you call yourself a Christian or not this morning, you do need a good answer to that question. 
And uh, in our passage this morning, we see the Apostle Paul in the midst of a terrifying crisis, a harrowing shipwreck. And how does he respond? Well, the way he acts in that crisis is, in a word, inspirational. He brings help. He brings hope to all of the people that are around him. Um, But I think the good news of this passage isn't just that it shows us that Paul acted this way. I think it also shows us how Paul acted this way. What was it that enabled Paul to respond the way he did? Because that's really what we need, isn't it? I mean, all of us, we would like to react like the sister, wouldn't we, when the crisis hits? We'd like to be the person. Like the, the first line of Rudyard Kipling's poem, If... If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. We'd all like to be that person, wouldn't we? The question is how? How do I do that? That poem, by the way, doesn't give you any help on that. How do I be that person? Well, I think this passage is going to show us the source of Paul's composure. And it is a source that is available to each one of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, in terms of where this fits, we're at the end of the story of Acts in chapters 21 to 28. Uh, Paul is under arrest and he's on his way uh, to Rome. And we've seen it. He's been dragged through court case after court case. And through all these trials, the big question has been in this part of the book, is Christianity good for society or is it a threat? Um, We've seen Paul has been accused over and over of all sorts of different things. Um, But time and time again in these trials in court, he's demonstrated um, that the gospel is not a threat to society. It's going to transform things, but it's not a threat. And I think here in this section, he he continues to demonstrate that as as he's in the middle of this crisis. and, And in this crisis, his faith uniquely enables him Uh, to love and serve the people around him in a crisis. So three big things we're going to see then in terms of where we're headed. Firstly, um, God brings Paul into a crisis in verses 8 to 20. Um, Secondly, God uses Paul for good in verses 24 to the end. And finally, uh, God gives him promises to trust. And that's looking right in the middle at verses 21 to 23. So that's where we're headed. Um, First of all, then, God brings Paul uh, into a crisis. Now, we didn't have time um, to to, to read verses 1 to 8, but basically, the author here paints a detailed picture of a terrifying situation. Um, Verses 1 to 8, Paul's under guard, under Roman guards. um, And if we could have a map up, um, he sets off, sail from down here um, all the way up here. Um, And the wind starts to pick up, kind of an ominous sign. It starts to be harder and harder for the ship to get where it's headed to Rome. And then eventually they come all the way down here uh, to Fair Havens. That's a great name. If you're going to be in a port, Fair Havens, that's a solid name. You want to stay there. But when they get to Fair Havens in verse 8, they now have a choice. They can either stay there for the winter, which isn't ideal, or they can make a dash for the next stop uh, 40 kilometers away. And Paul knows that that would be a risky thing to do. So in verse 10, he warns everyone this would be a bad idea. At this stage in his life, Paul's been on probably about 11, uh, I think it is, um, uh, voyages, covering about approximately 3,000 nautical miles. So he's not a beginner. But he is a prisoner, basically on death row. So he's completely ignored. The rulers of the ship completely ignore him, and they set out. And from verse 14 onwards, it's like a disaster movie. 
thing after thing goes wrong. So if you look down at uh, verse 14, you see they set out and they get hit by a hurricane and they get driven off course. In fact, they get driven off so far that later in the verses, they're, they're worried about running aground down here in Certis. They get driven that far um, uh, of course, that's how strong this hurricane is. I don't know about you, I, I, um, I once, um, when I was 14 years old, my family went on an activity day on a lake, and I went out onto a lake on one of those little one-man topper sailing boats. Um, I've never been any good at it. Um, but as I was on this lake, I didn't really have a chance, because a, a gale-force uh, wind hit. And the thing that I really remember about it is just the sheer power I sort of tried to move the stick that helps you steer, and it was just I remember being ripped out of my hands and the boom swinging across and being just driven relentlessly into the side. There's nothing I could do. I had to be rescued from the side of the lake. And it was just the sheer, my strength compared to this overwhelming wind was just nothing, irrelevant, overwhelmingly powerful. And that was just a small gale force wind in England. This is a hurricane wind in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea in October. You imagine what it would have felt like to be on that ship. Imagine the, the fear in the sailors' eyes in verse 17. As they, as they have a look down at verse 17, as they tie the boat together with ropes to try and stop it falling apart. Imagine the fear in their eyes in verse 18 as they start shedding cargo, throwing it over the side. Even their tackle, their ability to keep feeding themselves over the long term. You only get rid of that if you're absolutely desperate. Imagine the kind of hopelessness in people's voices in verse 20 as they have no sun for days on end. Um, li living in England, you might think no sun for, for days, no big deal. Um, but again, in the Mediterranean, in the middle of a hurricane, no sun means no navigation. Utterly without bearings. Completely adrift. And this situation goes on not just for days, but for weeks before they're eventually shipwrecked. I try to imagine that. The, the psychological impact of facing imminent death for weeks on end, utterly powerless to do anything about it. Harrowing. And no wonder, if you look at the end of verse 20, no wonder they give up all hope of being rescued. I just kind of want to pause there for a moment. One thing that I'd love us to notice at this stage is that God doesn't save Paul from experiencing this storm. He does hold Paul through the storm, but he does not keep Paul from the storm. Right, God, uh, Paul is God's man doing God's work here, right? But God does not put a protective bubble around him. He does not suspend the laws of nature. He will hold Paul through this storm, but he does not keep Paul from the storm. And that is, you, you need to know that. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or you're just looking in on, on the faith, um, trusting in Jesus, it does not put you in a protective bubble. God will hold you through the storms of life, but he won't keep you from them necessarily. And, and yet, if you don't know that ahead of time, it can knock you for six. 
I remember once trying to help one young person uh, who was facing a crisis. Their life was falling apart. And they were trying hard to obey God as best they could, but the situation just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And what happened? Well, they started getting furious with God, assuming that God somehow had had turned against them. And, And under the surface, subtly, right, there was this assumption that if I'm obeying God, he will keep me from facing the storms of life. Now, if you think that, even subconsciously, then when the storm comes, it's devastating. Suddenly God's against me or I've done something terribly wrong. But no, that, that, is, that is not how God works. And we see that here in this passage. God will keep us through the storms, but he doesn't hold us from them. And we need to know that so that when it happens, it doesn't knock us for six. That's the first thing we see here. Um, God brings Paul through this storm. Uh, Second big thing to see, um, God uses Paul for good. Um, I wonder if you noticed during the reading how time and time again, Paul has a positive impact on the people around him. Imagine for a moment if you were one of the prisoners next to Paul in the cells of this ship. And you see him do thing after thing after thing after thing. So as we, you see him in verse 10, like we've already seen, giving wise advice. Next, you see him giving encouragement at the height of the crew's ho- hopelessness. Paul stands up and gives a speech that gives everyone courage. Look at this in verse 21 with me. After they got a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the Lord, uh, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Now, we're going to come back to that promise. But for now, just, do you notice the repeated phrase in verse 22 and verse 25? Keep up your courage. Paul here is standing up and giving courage to everybody else. And think about that for a sec, right? Paul is a prisoner kind of on death row. He does not have a high status on this ship. He's surrounded by tough men, soldiers, sailors, prisoners. And yet he is the one who brings hope and encouragement to all those people around him. Next thing you see, you see Paul uh, stopping selfishness from tearing the crew apart. If you look down at verse 30, some sailors try to escape to save themselves, um, uh, putting everyone else in danger uh, on the, by escaping on the lifeboats. And Paul notices this and he confronts it by telling the, the centurion and the soldiers. I don't think anything spiritual is going on here. I think he just knows that the, the ship can't sail without a crew. And so he confronts his selfishness and he stops this selfishness from tearing the crew apart. Next thing you see Paul do, he cares for everybody's physical needs. Have a look down at verse 33. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. He knows they're about to be shipwrecked and people can't swim without energy. And so he's caring for everybody's physical needs. Notice the difference it makes. Verse 36, they were all encouraged 
and ate some food themselves. Next thing you see him do, uh, you see him saving the prisoners, the lives of the prisoners. As the ship begins to break apart, verse 42, the soldiers try to kill, to murder the rest of the prisoners. Because if the prisoners escape, the soldiers' lives are forfeit, right? So they try and save themselves by murdering the prisoners. But verse 43, on Paul's behalf, because of Paul, the centurion saves the lives of all the prisoners. Imagine watching Paul doing all of that, in the midst of this terrifying crisis, everybody panicking, Paul having this relentlessly positive impact. Imagine how you'd be feeling about him if you were sitting next to him here in that ship. And do you notice the difference there as well? Everybody else, the soldiers, the sailors, they're trying to save themselves at other people's expense. But Paul here, he's looking beyond his own needs his own security and and, and comfort and as he does that God is using him to bring help and hope to others in the middle of this crisis and that is not a one-off that pattern of God using his people in a crisis to bless others, that's a pattern you actually see throughout history. I, I came across two really interesting examples of this um, uh, in terms of how, how, how Christians respond to plagues and pandemics. So let me give you two examples. The first example, AD 65 in the Roman Empire. Marcus Aurelius is the emperor. You might remember him off of Gladiator. Um, a plague hits the Roman Empire and it wipes out a quarter to a third of the people across the whole empire. Devastating. The infrastructure is screwed. People are panicking. They don't know what to do. And one historian wrote this about the Christians, about how the Christians responded. Most of the Christian brothers, with unbridled love and loyalty, never thinking of themselves, heedless of danger, cared for the sick, ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours and cheerfully accepting their pain. Many, in nursing others back to health, transferred their death to themselves and died in their steads. See, with that promise of resurrection, God was using his people to love others in the middle of a terrifying crisis. Fast forward to 1665, much closer to home, a village in Derbyshire. The bubonic plague is ravaging England. And there was one particular village that had an unusually high percentage of Christians. Almost everyone in the village was Christians. A few of the people in the village uh, get the disease. And the village as a whole decide that they are going to lock down, that they're going to self-isolate, that they shut the gates, no one in or out. Food has to be delivered to the outside of the gates just so they can keep eating. Of course... The bubonic plague ravages the village. 76 families died. One woman buried six members of her family in a single day. But by doing that, the death toll in the surrounding area was massively reduced. Now, one of the, uh, one of the descendants of one of those families wrote this. Every family had a strong faith and did not fear death. 
See, throughout history, when crisis hits, Christians have been known for not just speaking of their hope, but living it out by loving and serving other people, just like we see Paul do here in this passage. Apparently, I read this week that uh, the Chinese character for crisis is made up of two characters. One character, for, which means danger, and one character, which means opportunity. When a crisis hits, for a Christian, there is danger, yes, but there's also an opportunity to be used by Jesus to love and serve other people. What a saviour we have of course, uh, our temptation any time a, a disaster hits is to, to look inwards, to let our own problems fill our horizon. But I think Jesus would call us beyond that. But when the crisis hits, we need to be asking ourselves, what can I do to help other people? Not just looking at my own problems, but the problems of the people around me. What can I do to help others? Lockdown's probably coming again, isn't it? in our current crisis. Is that a question that you'll ask yourself? Imagine if we all did that. Imagine the impact that we could have in loving and serving others. So Paul, uh, God brings Paul into this crisis. God uses Paul for good. Um, but let's get real for a moment. I don't know about you, I, I, that, that does not come naturally to me. I do not naturally react in that kind of loving, self-giving way. So we still need to know how. How could Paul do this? How could those Christians react that way? What is it that gives us the power to do that? And that's what we're going to see in our third point. God gave Paul promises to trust. What was the source of Paul's composure? Well, have a look down with me again at verse uh, 23. Paul's speaking and he says, Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. God gave Paul a promise to trust. God promised that Paul would take the gospel to Rome and from Rome the gospel would go to the end of the world. And we've seen kind of throughout the book of Acts that, that, that God has been fulfilling this promise and there's been barrier after barrier after barrier and it just keeps going. So we've seen persecution and the promise keeps going. We've seen corruption and the promise keeps going. We've seen political opposition and court cases and the gospel just keeps going. Here we see the unbridled power of nature and Paul knows God's promise will keep going. Paul trusts that promise more than what he can see around him. So look at verse 25. I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. That must have sounded crazy on the, on the deck of that ship, right? With the waves crashing over. 
and people panicking. That must have sounded crazy. As the people on that ship looked to other sources of hope, as they looked to their leaders and saw that their leaders were incompetent and had got them in this situation in the first place, as they looked to their, their, their physical situation and their, the boats tied together with ropes to stop it breaking apart, as they look at their circumstances, these waves crashing, they're utterly hopeless. But Paul looked to the promises of God And he found in them a composure that enabled him to keep his mind when all about him were losing theirs. That enabled him to love and serve other people when they were thinking only of themselves. Paul Paul drank in the promises of God and he's revived by them. He's empowered to love and serve other people. Now we need to be careful here, don't we? Because that promise in verse 23, it's not a promise that's made directly to Christians today. Um, God does not promise that you get to go to Rome, as appealing as that would be heading into an English winter. But the Bible does make all sorts of phenomenal promises to us, and it calls us to follow Paul's example of trusting in them. Just a few examples that should be coming up on the boards. Here are some of the promises made to Christians. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Whatever happens to us, God will use it for our good. I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That whatever we go through here and now, the glory that's coming is far better. Now, if we drink in those promises, like Paul, there is a power there to respond to crisis in a way that is self-giving. Just think of those Christians back in the plagues, right? What was it that gave them the power to love the way they did? The promise of eternal life. Now we have that same promise. We have that same hope. If you're trusting in Christ, the question is, what do you look to when a crisis hits? Are the promises of God the source of your composure? Or do you look elsewhere? For those of us who wouldn't call ourselves Christians, maybe who are just looking into the Christian faith, can I just ask, do you have a source of hope like that? I'd I'd love to sort of gently suggest that you do need one. We do need a source of hope that is bigger, that's beyond us. It's really interesting to me at the moment, one of the, one of the ways that our society encourages us to cope with crisis at the moment, one of the big ways, mindfulness. The big idea of mindfulness being that by becoming more aware of my situation, my thoughts and my feelings through various meditative practices like meditation, or reflective practices like meditation, I, I gain the resilience I need to deal with crisis big idea of of mindfulness. And there's a lot to be said for it. I'm quite a fan of it in many ways. But the problem with all these techniques that mindfulness recommends, they all rely on me. And as such, they're only as strong as me. 
problem with that is there are some crises in life, there are some storms in life that break me, that overwhelm me, that leave me on the bathroom floor in a heap of ugly tears. And in those moments, you need a hope that is stronger than you are. I put it to you that in the midst of that storm, Paul needed a hope that was stronger than himself to act the way that he did. He needed the eternal promises of God. Do you have something like that? The wonderful news of the Christian faith is that those promises are offered to each of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That anyone who comes to him and puts their faith in him inherits these promises as they're reconciled to God through Jesus' death and resurrection. It's held out to each and every one of us in Jesus. If you would like to know more about that, we've got this Christianity Explore course that's running. It's not too late to join. There'll be a slide coming up at the end of the service if you're watching online where you can follow that. Or if you're here in the building, do just come and chat to me afterwards. It's not too late to get involved with that Christianity Explore course. We do need a source of hope that is bigger and stronger than us. If you're a Christian here today, you have that in the Lord Jesus. Do you make the most of it when a crisis hits? Are the promises of God the source of your composure? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this inspirational example from Paul's life of, of, of what can be done when he stood and trusted in your promise in the midst of a crisis, the way that you were able to use him to love and bless others. Lord, I pray for us here today that we would, we would find the source of our composure in your promises and in you. I pray that as we do that, you would be able to use us to love and serve other people in times of crisis. In your name we pray and for your glory. Amen.